Number 2. Ephesians, third quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're going to start Lesson 2, God's Grand Christ-Centered Plan in the quarter on Ephesians. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator, and Alan is going to offer our opening prayer. Heavenly Father, we are thankful to live in a day and age where technology allows us to meet no matter where we live, where that technology allows our community to be extended to listeners all over the world, and where that technology puts scripture and so many study helps right at our fingertips. Please have your spirit lead today's discussion, and please give our facilitator, John, us, and those who listen, your wisdom and compassion. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this is the second in a series on Ephesians, and in the first part of this series, we look particularly at the book of Acts and noticing some of the various occasions on which Paul had visited Ephesus, talked a little bit about the city and its history, and now we're going to get into the book itself. And to get right off the bat here, we're going to turn to Ephesians chapter 1 and verses 3 through 14. And I'm going to give you a heads up. If you look at the handout, number one, it says, Paul begins his letter to the Ephesians with a majestic thank you note. Count the number of sentences in your translation of the passage. And which of these sentences do you think is the main sentence of the section? So as Terry is reading, I want you to be following along in your own and be looking for the sentence structures as you go through. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. In him, you also... When you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. All right. So two questions here. I'd like you to share how many verses you found, how many sentences you found in this passage. And then which of those you think is the most important? Let me just start off by saying that in my New International Version, there were nine periods, nine sentences. And I won't say which one's the most important because I know something some of you may not have seen in English yet, but happened to be nine in the NIV. What did you find in your translation and which of those do you think is the key one? Go ahead, Orlando. Yes, yes. I have a seven sentences, and something that caught my attention is the verse 11. In him also we have received an inheritance. 
a destiny we were claimed by God as his own, having been predestined, chosen, appointed beforehand, according to the purpose of him who works everything in agreement with the counsel and design of his will. All right. Thank you. Uh, well done. Sean. I'm reading from the Berkeley version. There were five sentences and sentence number three, which encompasses verses seven through 10 are the ones that I found incredibly significant over the length of this passage. And I won't read all those, but it concludes with a plan to be brought to completion when the time fully comes to bring everything together in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Henry notices in the chat that in his Spanish version is three sentences, the first one being eight verses long. And Livius comments that verses 7 to 10 also stood out to him. David and Terry say the NRSV has six sentences. All right, I'm probably going to make everybody mad here. But let me tell you the truth. In the Greek language, there is no verb anywhere in these 12 verses. The verb is understood. And for Paul, the key sentence, believe it or not, is in verse 3. because. It says in my NIV, praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, or blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The be is not there in the original. It's just blessed the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But it's understood. It's understood that he's saying, you know, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Everything else is subordinate. One single sentence, the entire thing. Now, I'm, I'm not saying the translations are terrible or wrong. They're trying to make sense of it for you. But the reality is this was one single sentence in the Greek and doesn't even state what the main verb is. It's a literary masterpiece, but can be very challenging to figure out in the English. People often say, do I need to learn Greek to understand the New Testament? I'd say 90% of the time, no. The translations will be good enough, but every so often you run into one that totally surprises you, and this would be one of those. Bob? With these different variations, how far back in history were the scholars who worked these out working? Is this like a thousand years ago, a hundred years ago? That there's one sentence? Yeah. In other words, were there many, many different attempts to do this over a period of a thousand years, or is it relatively recent that all this was done? I think this is obvious, if you're reading it in the Greek, that there are main verbs and then there are subordinate clauses and things like that. And I think it was intentional on Paul's part and was intended to be obvious to the readers. But when it gets into translation, you can't always mimic the Greek. It may not make sense. You know, if you just said, bless the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, that's not even a sentence in English. So you've got to do some interpreting even to begin to make sense of this. But reading it in the Greek, you have the main sentence. And then if you're doing a sentence tree, and Alyssa would love this, but if you're doing this sentence tree, this literary structure, everything else is subordinate to that first sentence. Paul is basically saying, God has blessed us and everything else. He's saying, here's how God has blessed us by this, 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 and this. So it really opened my eyes when the first time I read the text and just began to see this incredibly complex train of thought. And Paul tends to do that. It's why some people have difficulty with Paul, because 
as hard as the translators try, this is still a very difficult passage to fully grasp as you work your way through it. Go ahead there, Michael. How often have they had to revise the translation? Because, for example, Elizabethan English is significantly different from the English spoken today. We can read it, we can understand it, but it's much different. Mm -hmm. Well, just, you know, looking at our little survey here, we came up with three, five, seven, and nine sentences, I believe. Or is there one with six sentences? Yeah, how the translator addresses this is very much a personal thing. And so what I've often said to people is you're safest working with the English if you use a variety of translations. And wherever you get a passage where they all differ in some way, you know you're dealing with a challenging passage. And this is one of those. Virtually every translation handles the different twists and turns. Another example of it in verse 4, it says, He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted. Now, that in love could go either way. The line between verse 4 and 5 could go either way. Those are judgment calls of the translator and of the interpreter as they go through. So this text is challenging, but there's some rich, wonderful things in here. And we will do our best to highlight those as we go on. One commentator has said, Paul here is doing a master class in how to worship God. It's recognizing that God desires are good, that God has done many, many good things for us, if only we would notice. And when we do notice, we thank and praise him for those good things. And that's worship. And that's what Paul is doing here. He's thanking God for the tremendous blessings that God has poured out on everyone. And I guess that raises the question, what does blessing mean? Anybody here want to take a shot at that? When it says God has blessed us, what does that mean? I mean? We don't talk about blessings. You know, in the law court today, they're not busy talking about blessings, are they, Bob, Michael? Yet they're written into our contracts. Blessings and curses are in the contracts. They just have different names. Carol? I would say blessings are all around us, and we take it for granted that we're just alive. Because of God's grace, we're not all annihilated from the sin that besets us because we're born terminal. So it's only his grace keeping us alive. So everything that keeps us alive, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the breath we take, it's all blessings. All right, Sean. I've often substituted in my thinking, in my prayerfulness, the words favor and benefits when it comes to blessing. When you get down to the root meaning of the word, it's material. So blessings are gifts. Blessings are good stuff, goodies, money, presents, electronics, whatever you want to say. All right. The root meaning of the term is that good things are happening to you and they are financial, they are physical, they are material. It's the good stuff of life. It's the things that make life worth living. That's the core meaning of blessing. But it's not the way Paul is using it here because he talks about one who has blessed us with what? Every spiritual blessing. So Paul's focus here is not on the goodies of life that God is pouring those out on us. Sometimes we get them, sometimes we don't, okay? But he's talking about spiritual blessings. 
He's talking about how God is constantly pouring out on us. And one example would be thinking of the previous study that we did. One of them is protection from Satan and everything that he would want to do to us. God is pouring out good stuff for us, but he's preventing the enemy from pouring out bad stuff on us, from taking away everything we have, from taking away our minds, for example, and totally messing up our lives. We are under his protection. All right, Lou? And then there's the gift of the peace that passes understanding. I've just been rereading Job. It's an incredible story of how he hung on to that. He didn't understand where all that was coming from, but he never, ever really doubted his relationship to God. He hung on. So there is a peace, as we know about the martyrs and apostles that were tortured and killed. So it's beyond our understanding. It's a gift. All right, Livius. Well, I looked up the Greek for the word blessed, and it's used three times in the first part here. Blessed be God who has blessed and spiritual blessing. And the word is eulogeo, the base, I think the root is word, and please correct me if I'm wrong. But it says in my theological dictionary of the New Testament, the literal sense is speaking well. This yields the meaning to extol. So it's fascinating to put that concept into this sentence that God, our Father of all our Jesus Christ, who is speaking well, and he speaks well of us in Christ, and he's speaking in heavenly places. So that's an interesting idea to bring that into this, what the sentence is trying to say, that God is speaking well of us. Mm -hmm. I like that very much, yeah. And taking the root meanings, it's the meaning for word and the meaning for good. So it's good word is the meaning. Now, this blessing, as we understand it, is an extended meaning of what is simply saying nice things about somebody else. But that is obviously not what it means much of the time when it's used in the Bible. But that is a root meaning that I think is very powerful in this context, that we can bless God when we speak well of him. I think is the way we sometimes talk about it. Rita? I was thinking earlier today about this, and could Paul be referencing pre-creation of the world and creation of Adam and Eve here in these verses 3 and 4, in that God chose us as human beings to be blameless in his sight and to share the work of Christ in rulership. Uh, That's not really the word I want to use because that kind of has some slightly negative connotations in our modern day language. But we've talked about this before, about that his purpose for us as humans when we were created were to be princes and kings in the universe. And I wondered if Paul was referencing back to that in this early part, and he's moving on through that from then choosing humans, choosing the Israelites, choosing him and his compatriots, and choosing these Ephesians. They're all part of that history. The lesson doesn't bring that out of these verses. And so, you know, just off the top, I would have to say, though, that the words creation of the world would seem to be, assuming that the world here is cosmos, that would be the creation of this earth in the Greek. Tapanta would be the universe. So assuming that this is cosmos without having it in front of me, creation of the world would be a reference to Garden of Eden, etc. That God's decisions in this regard are before that. 
That was before he created Adam and Eve. He already had a purpose for them. And it says, in love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. That means that in God's purpose, there was not only the purpose to have us as his children and with all the purpose that we would have in that, the dominion and everything else, but that if things go wrong, he already planned to adopt us. In other words, imagine God saying that you have children, you're raising the children, then they get swept away by some enemy power and are in captivity somewhere, and you buy them back. You adopt your own kids is the language that's happening here. So God has promised not just to create us and have us as family, but to adopt us back should we wander away. And I think that is a powerful combination that says that God's commitment to us is unshakable regardless. Michael. My question is kind of off the beaten path, but how did these letters of Paul, including this one to the Ephesians, get preserved? We take them for granted. We open up our Bibles, no matter which version we're looking at, and we just say, this is the word of God. But I don't think Paul sat down and said, I realize that I'm writing scripture here, so I got to be careful what I say. So how did that all come about? Excellent question. And clearly, it was probably not thought of as scripture. Certainly, Paul probably didn't think in those terms. But you do have Peter who comes in in 2 Peter 3 and says, Paul, in his writings, using the word for scripture, says things that are hard to be understood, etc. So Peter seems to recognize Paul's writings as a unit and having some relationship to a higher plane. So early on already, you have a sense that these letters are special. In practice, and there was one textual scholar who speculated in this way, and I found it very appealing. And he said, what would happen is Paul's letter would arrive in a church and it would be read in church on Sabbath. And in the congregation would be a businessman from a different city. And the businessman would say, oh, I've got to have that. Could I take it home with me tonight and copy it? And then I'll return it to you. And then the next day he brings Paul's letter back, but he has the copy in his pocket and he goes to his church and has it read there. And there's three people in the congregation visiting from all over the place, and they want copies as well. This would explain how Paul's writings quickly got all over the place. It would also explain how even the earliest manuscripts have significant differences. You follow me? You've heard about manuscript errors, manuscript problems. They go all the way back to the beginning. (laughs) The moment Paul's letter arrived in a church, It was beginning to be copied, and people in copying make mistakes. They get some things wrong. So today, scholars look at the 300 versions of Ephesians, say, and they find out, you know, 80% of the time it's this word and 20% it's that word. Well, which one was likely the one that Paul wrote? And there's different principles and operations there that one makes those decisions by. And that's where you get manuscript changes, where one translation may have it different than another different word, etc. Exciting stuff. So very, very early, these things would have been spread abroad. And it's clear by at least the middle of the century that Paul's writings as a group were considered a body of literature, along with the four Gospels. So you have four Gospels, and then you have Paul's writings. Those early coalesced, some of the other parts of the New Testament were accepted later on in the second, third, even toward the beginning of the fourth century before some of them got accepted. So yeah, that's a fascinating process worthy of its own class. Neil. 
I wonder how many have taken these texts as a basis for predestination. I have a Coptic Christian friend of mine. He's Egyptian. He turned around and he looked at me one day and he says, aren't you so glad that God chose you and me to be part of his family? I'd say amen. Yeah. Interesting, important question. What exactly is God predestining? Is he guaranteeing that some will be saved and others will be lost? Or is God predestining all to be saved, but respects our freedom to reject if we will? And I think you can make a defensible case either way. People have done so. Probably the truth of the matter is somewhere in between. And I kind of like to put it this way. When we look to the past, we can see that God had a hand in where we are today. When we look to the future, we realize we still have choices to make. And so something like that, you know, plays the tension. But the Bible definitely has predestination texts. And usually it means chosen for a mission. It isn't about salvation, chosen for a mission. So as we go through, ask yourself the question, what is the predestining here? Is God choosing us for a mission or is God choosing us to be saved while he's choosing others to be lost? I think that would be the starkest contrast here. Let's go back to, and we've already started this, but Terry, if you would read verses three through six, and we'll take a closer look at that. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. We've already touched base on the first two verses, I think, and David confirms that the word in verse four is cosmos. So creation of the world is not creation of the universe in this place, but is a reference to Adam. And then the suggestion was perhaps adoption gets you into Israel. So you're maybe going a bit through the history of the Old Testament as we are operating in this particular passage. So he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. So the creation is one thing. The adoption comes along later. Those who wander away, God adopts his own children. So evidently, if predestination at before creation, if that was to salvation, it it didn't work, did it? Because adoption was necessary. And that adoption comes in Christ. And do you remember we had a number of different possibilities of what that in Christ meant, but concluded that in Ephesians, it was past tense and would be a reference to in Christ, meaning in relation to the cross, that just as in Adam all have died, so in Christ all are made alive. Some read that text in a universal sense. God predestined everybody to be saved at some point. I think most of us would probably resist that idea, believing that it overrides human freedom. But in Christ, all will be made alive, meaning all who receive him will be made alive. That made alive is guaranteed in Christ, but that God does not override our freedom. What I see in this text is that it's God's intention for us to be saved. If you've ever worried about your salvation, if you ever wondered if you're good enough, Paul is saying that decision's already been made. The question is, are you going to accept God's decision or not? God's intention is to save you. God's purpose 
is to save you. And if you're there wondering if he wants to save you or not, that is contrary to the scriptures. So Paul here is basically saying God's intention is for us to be saved. And in Christ, he's willing to take us back whenever we wander away. It is his desire to be saved. So Paul wants everyone to feel encouraged, strengthened, etc. through these passages. All right, verses 7 and 8. And by the way, in Christ or in him appears 11 times in this passage. So it's clearly in Christ is the central theme here. Go ahead. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace that he lavished on us. All right. So here he says, basically, he has redeemed us. In him, we have redemption through his blood. But what is redemption? What does that mean to you? I mean, we sing the song, redeemed how I love to proclaim it. Well, why would you love to proclaim it if you're not even sure what it means? So let's explore that a little bit before we go on. Carol. I'm sorry, I was referring to your comment before about being sure of your salvation. It just made the story of the 10 virgins pop into my mind, how five were prepared and they had the oil in their lamps, the Holy Spirit, and the other five not so good. And yet they were all looking forward to the bridegroom coming. So they were all religious. How does that fit in with the absolute assurance of our salvation? I mean, it's God's will that we're saved. And it seems like those five unprepared virgins wanted to be saved, but they weren't. How does that work out? I guess the challenge would be with the adjective absolute, wouldn't it? Assurance of salvation isn't an absolute in the sense that no matter what a person says and no matter what a person does, God has already predestined the outcome. But I would understand that God's purpose is set. And to the degree that our picture of God doesn't see him that way, Paul is trying to change our minds. God is on our side. God is not against us. We can rebel. We can say no, but God is not against us. And don't blame God if you don't make it. I think that's kind of where he's going. Appreciate the clarification. What about redemption here? What is your sense of that term? Sean? I get some sense of that term by this particular translation. Verse 5, in love he predestined us in Jesus Christ to be his sons. And this phrase is what helps me. In agreement with the kind intent of his will, there would be redemption for me if my wife approaches me with the kind intent of her will to welcome me back should I have wronged her. That helps me understand the process of redemption. Here is a God that exists with the characteristics of kind intent toward me and toward all of his creation. And therefore, there is a way back for me into his presence. That recalls, I think, other studies that we've done together where love is defined as other-centeredness, that God's focus is on that which is best for his children, whether they are by birth or by adoption, both of which are metaphors, of course, more than literal elements. But the adoption points out God's willingness to give us second, third, fourth chances. We can blow off our childhood to God, our relationship to God, but adoption gives us another chance. Bob? Going back to the virgins who apparently were not patient enough, what's the difference between them and, say, doubting Thomas? Because it does seem like 
Jesus made the comment that even though he doubted it was okay because that was his personality. I mean, Jesus didn't condemn him. I'm wondering if the 10 virgins are very close to Thomas, or maybe they were saved anyway, or some of them would be saved because it's kind of a parable. And like we've always said, parables, you shouldn't take them all the way out too far. Three-legged parables, right? <laughs> There's hope for the 10 virgins. In other yes. Words. Yes. I don't think he's pronouncing finally, except that if the parable is eschatological, he's talking about a situation at the very end of Earth's history when there is a final, a do or die, so to speak. And again, this is maybe one of the arguments against the universalism is that the Bible seems to go to great lengths to talk about a day beyond which there's no coming back. And that the whole idea of judgment is demonstration that when God has made those distinctions, he has done so in a way that is fair, is just, and respects the choices of each individual person. So with that in mind, then the standard view, and the view I think that most of us hold here, would be there is a day beyond which there's no coming back. But in a real sense, close of probation isn't God shutting the door. Close of probation is us not going in when the opportunity is present. Michael? Redemption is a legal term as well. If you pawn an object in a pawn shop, the way you get it back is you redeem it by paying whatever the fee is. And in that sense, I think that how are we redeemed? And I think Paul is saying we're redeemed through the blood of Christ and our salvation is assured. And I have a question and I've heard, I wouldn't say several, but I've heard a number of different Adventists say, when I ask them, are you saved? And they say, I hope so. <laughs> and my answer is that, yeah, I'm saved. It happened a couple thousand years ago on a cross on Calvary. I had nothing to do with it. All I have to do is accept it. Excellent, Michael. Very perceptive way to present that. And I think this becomes part of the now and the not yet. Paul definitely is speaking here of a reality in the past that saved us. And we are saved in Christ. We are saved in what he did at the cross. At the same time, there's a not yet. There's a future. And there are choices to be made and aligning or not aligning ourselves. So the Bible, it's so easy to focus on one side of a biblical perspective and take all the texts that speak to that and have a nice coherent idea. But the Hebrew mind is not so neat and distinct. And it can take two things that in our minds are opposite and put them together and say, you got to hold them both. And that's where the tension is, Michael. I think you're right. I mean, some Adventists in saying what you heard them say are reflecting a truth of scripture that an arrogant, you know, I'm saved no matter what I do is not what the Bible's talking about, assurance of salvation. We have assurance in God's intention and in the fact that he doesn't cast people aside for an occasional misdeed. It's a settled rebellion that separates us from God permanently in the end. And God will demonstrate that in the lives of those who are unsaved. So Adventists, I think, are trying to preserve something that's biblical there. But when you miss out on the assurance side of it, it's a very miserable place to be. So, yeah, right on target there, Michael. Livius. The word redemption here is qualified by the phrase, through his blood. 
I'm not an English specialist here, but to me, in him, we have redemption through his blood. So the through his blood is working on the redemption. And we as Christians throw this blood around all the time. We have it in songs and sayings, and we sprinkle blood wherever we can, and we get a good feeling about it. But I don't think we really understand what that word means. The scripture defines it as the life is in the blood. So if we read this as in him, we have redemption through his life, that brings on a totally different understanding of how redemption comes, how we can acquire redemption. And I think that by walking in his footsteps, living his life, doing the things he did, imitating him, Christ in us, the hope of glory is how redemption comes. Yeah, and I think the use of blood there has to be seen as metaphorical. I mean, it's literal in the sense that Christ did shed his blood on the cross. So it's a reference to an actual shedding of blood. Yeah. But the power of the blood is the principle behind it rather than a literalness. And if you take it completely literal, then you have to do something like the transubstantiation in the Mass where it actually becomes literal blood. But I, I don't think that's what Paul is saying here. I think there's a reference to the sanctuary, sacrifices, and so on. And the sanctuary was a way that Israel could return to God. And it was fairly literal. But Paul is not encouraging Christians to go to the temple, not encouraging them to bring animals. He's saying that what happened in Christ is sufficient. So, yeah, the blood there, I think, is heading toward the metaphorical, yet it's very, very real. Rita? To me, redemption is being rescued from and set free from whatever it is that's binding us and limiting us and making us sinful, rebellious creatures. And through Christ's life and death, which represented by his blood here, which I think that's perhaps what Paul is referencing, is by understanding what Christ was, what he did, who he was, that we then see who God really is so that we can come to him and know that we can be made whole and then live in Christ eternally. So it's about being set free from the the prison that Satan has ensnared us into. Yes, thank you. Lou? And of course, the life of Christ with his coming and showing us about who God really is, living and then dying, and then his ascension to heaven, that he said, I must go so I can send the Holy Spirit, the Comforter. Yes, there's the blood, there's the life of Christ, there's the blood of Christ, and then there is the transformation of the Holy Spirit. And I think when Jesus comes, that those who have that Holy Spirit connection and that infilling are the ones that, as Graham used to say, will be safe to save. Thank you. Yes. I want to come back to what Michael was saying just a little bit earlier about redemption and how that works at pawn shops and things like that. I think that comes pretty close to what the ancients would have understood here, because for them, The word redemption had to do with being purchased out of slavery. Now, in some cases, some slaves purchased their own way out because there were slaves who were very useful. They were scholars, etc. And often they would get tips or be paid for aspects of their service if they were tutoring children, things like that. So there were slaves who were able to buy themselves out. But in other cases, someone else might come on, take pity on someone and buy them 
out of slavery. And that's the core meaning of redemption. Here in this particular context, redemption in verses 7 and 8 is the forgiveness of sins, as we see in the text, that he has redeemed us through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Those two clauses are parallel to each other. He has redeemed us through his blood. He has forgiven our sins. So they are seen as two different ways of saying the same thing. So forgiveness of sin, a new life, a new opportunity, a change of status is what this redemption is all about. And the word redemption has the implications of costliness, that God's accepting us back. There was a cost to it. The cross being the place where that redemption occurs was costly to God. Now, in the Middle Ages, people speculated, who did God pay the ransom to? You know, if this is a ransom thing, did God pay it to himself? Did Christ pay it to God? Did God pay it to Satan? There are all these different speculations going on. But the concept of paying a price isn't limited to paying it to somebody else. And we think of athletes, for example, winning a gold medal. They pay a price to do that. They sacrifice movies. They sacrifice Disneyland. They sacrifice all kinds of pleasures, going to the beach, etc., to do their exercise and do their training and all that in order to win, to be better than everybody else. You see, there's a cost, a tremendous cost, but you're not paying it to someone else. It's a cost that is necessary to accomplish something. So redemption there, I think, highlights the idea that it isn't cheap for God, but saving us is costly. Brings us back to number four, in your handout, and the text that we looked at at the end last time, verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. With all wisdom and insight, he has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. God has a will. God has a purpose. God has a good pleasure. Uh, it's almost like Paul is racking his dictionary for words that might be even partially adequate to the tremendous gift of God, God's plan, God's purpose. God will do whatever it takes to unite the universe again in Christ. As we noted earlier, the implication is there's a broken, divided universe. No mention of Satan here, but Satan gets plenty of play elsewhere in Ephesians. No mention of the cross here, but it's clearly implied by the in Christ. So I would say this passage in Ephesians is the single most comprehensive text in the whole Bible. It goes from eternity past, before creation, to eternity future, the inheritance that we have in the future. It goes to the highest place in the universe and the lowest place in the universe. It's a totally comprehensive. It says the one thing, the one single most important thing going on in the entire universe today is fixing the brokenness that occurred when sin came in. And Ephesians 1 brings that out more comprehensively and more clearly, perhaps, than any other passage in the Bible. You have a fullness of time here from beginning to end. You have a fullness of space. Heaven, the highest place, earth, the lowest place. What happened at the cross is universal for all time and all space. What Jesus did there will never need to happen again. It's a one-time event in universal history. 
Henry. I wonder if when it says in Christ, it's only referring to what happened at the cross, or is this referring to the full demonstration throughout Christ's life? Because he mentions in John that he fulfilled the mission that was given to him, that he has revealed the Father or his character even before the cross. So I wonder if the demonstration is not just the cross. The cross is the apex, is the culmination of the whole demonstration that has taken place throughout Jesus's life. And that one without the other will be incomplete. I don't have any issue with the idea that you're presenting, Henry. The issue is simply, is that what Paul is saying here? And if we generalize something that's more specific, we might misunderstand a little bit of his purpose. As I mentioned, Colossians has a parallel text. And in Colossians, he explicitly says the cross. Another parallel text is John 12. And there he mentions Satan and the cross in the context of the final judgment that will occur. So I think that, Paul, here, the reason scholars go with the cross, the death and resurrection of Jesus, and perhaps he could include his life. I don't know that that's being excluded here, but it's the Christ event, and it's the use of past tenses throughout here that suggests that the in Christ is not the Holy Spirit in our hearts today or the union we'll have with God in the future. It's referring specifically to an event in the past. And for Paul, that decisive event is always summarized by the word cross or sometimes by death and resurrection. John. Am I correct in thinking that what Paul is saying with regards to the plan of salvation as we term it, the cross, was the solution to heavenly rebellion, which then became the solution to earthly rebellion. In other words, the plan of salvation surely was before the sin on this planet. In a real sense, we're talking about atonement. What happened? How did God fix the problem in the universe? And most theories of atonement focus on us. He fixed the sin problem. He fixed the human problem. He fixed Adam's problem. What Paul is doing here is expand this to the entire universe and to all time. And as I mentioned, Colossians uses the word cross in there as well. So what he is doing is saying that what happened at the cross is bigger than us. However you explain what happened at the cross, it has to be something relevant to the unfallen universe as well as the fallen earth. And the idea that at the cross, God has victory over the powers of evil, and that at the cross, there is a revelation of God's character. Those are two elements, at least, that have universal implications, not just earthly implications. And so seeing a bigger view of the cross or larger view, as Graham sometimes said, is what seems to come through clearly in Ephesians and Colossians. So how does God plan to unify the universe? If you go back there, It says in my translation, to put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and earth together under one head, even Christ. Going back to the Greek again, he uses the word here to head up all things in Christ. That's an odd way of expressing it. But in ancient accounting, that word was used when you were looking at a whole column of financial items expenditures, income, whatever. You have a whole column of moneyed items. And when you add them up, they would put the total at the top. We usually put it at the bottom, right? They put the total at the top. They 
head up everything. They head up everything. So that's the language here. Everything finds its total in Christ. Keep in mind that only 20 years before a human being walked this earth, somebody who got tired, somebody who ate and drank, somebody who went to the bathroom, all the rest of that, to come to realize that those three and a half years were the most significant in all of the universe's history probably didn't come easily to the disciples. It certainly didn't come easy to Paul when he first encountered this. So this is something new, something overwhelming, something life-changing that is happening. And Paul is making that central in all of this. And the idea that God has a plan, has a purpose, has a good pleasure in all of this is once again saying, God treating us well is no accident. He intended to do that from the beginning. He's willing to sign a contract, if you will, of his goodwill toward you. And he did that in sending Jesus. Michael. Christ's salvific event of his life and death is a mind-boggling concept. It's an ongoing process. There are people who are dying today, no matter how long they live. And there are also newborns coming into existence. And that promise of salvation is for them as well. It just staggers my mind to conceive of some of this stuff. This text is staggering. When you try to put your head around it, it's mind-blowing. This text is as difficult as it may be to read in contemporary English. Paul is overflowing with words, trying to say something you can't say that's impossible to fully express, and challenging us to really put our minds around something bigger than we can handle. Henry? And not only that, God was planning to make the revelation during the time of Christ during his life and crucifixion, but that was his intention all of the time. From the beginning in heaven, not the beginning on earth, the beginning on heaven, when he tried to solve the issue in heaven with Lucifer, that was his will. And that's what verse 9 calls my attention when he says, and he made known to us the mystery of his will, what we didn't know he was intended to do all of the time. Not just at this last time, but that has been his will all of the time, and that it finally got accomplished and got revealed through that last demonstration. But he has always been willing to stop this, probably hoping to be able to finish it earlier, but it took as long as we needed to have it. I love that, Henry, underlining for us that word mystery in all of that, recognizing that Probably through most of history, we haven't thought of God as thinking well of us. We haven't thought of God as having a plan and purpose for our good. Israel especially probably often thought of God as a pagan deity, one that they had to appease with their sacrifices and hope to somehow persuade to be on their side. In Jesus Christ, a mystery was unpacked, and that's a term that's used quite frequently in the New Testament, the mystery of God, referring to what Jesus did when he came. And in that aspect, I would definitely, Henry, add in the life of Jesus as part of that demonstration as well. All right, let's go to number five and read verses 11 and 12. In Christ, we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will 
so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory. All right, so here once again, we have words like chosen in this text, the predestined, the plan, etc., the purpose of his will, even more than the previous text. He's using this language that the positive outcome is assured. They are not victims of an arbitrary, capricious deity. They are children of God, and they have access to blessings based on God's eternal decisions, and therefore they can have unshakable confidence as they stand before God. It brings in one additional thing, though, here, and that's the idea of inheritance. And let's take a look at several texts here. Verse 14, God guarantees our inheritance, but look at verse 18. I pray that the eyes of your hearts may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. I just wanted to point out that this concept of inheritance is double. We have an inheritance, what God has in store for us in the future. God has an inheritance, and that inheritance is us. And that was unexpected for me as I was studying in preparation for this. And the lesson author pointed out that there's several places in the Old Testament where Israel is treated as God's inheritance. So what is Paul trying to communicate when he says we are God's inheritance? My simple mind can simply go in one direction. That would be, he must be saying that we are valuable to God, that God sees our salvation as something really important to himself, something to rejoice over. As Jesus says, there's rejoicing in heaven, right? When one person comes back. So somehow God sees a value in us that we have a hard time seeing in ourselves. And these passages are seeking to assure us. Paul's repeating himself, trying to say, look, you can trust God. He's on your side. He wishes good for you. He has a plan, a purpose, a good pleasure that you would be saved. If you're not, it won't be God's fault. He's done everything that he possibly can to accomplish that for us. In the end, salvation will bring glory to God. God will look better because of our salvation than even we knew before. Rita? You were talking about God's inheritance, and maybe it's that it's those who have come to understand who God is and are therefore able to praise of his glory forever and ever and for eternity to come that's what will be required in the universe probably that we have seen both sides those who are on his side have seen both sides and really understand what it is to praise and glorify God more than those who have always been by his side interesting very excellent point Livius do you think that maybe verse 18 and verse 5 kind of connect in that verse 5 says, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. So God's inheritance, we are adopted through Jesus. That's how he gains us as an inheritance, as sons, as part of his family. Sounds good to me. Yeah. Michael? Paul had this personal encounter with Jesus, which undoubtedly, well, we know it affected his life thereafter. And I think this letter to the Ephesians, as it starts out, reflects his enthusiasm about 
finding Christ and what Christ has to offer to each and every one of us. He's just effervescent with his ideas and his emotions. Yes, and the exciting thing about that, Michael, is that this effervescence comes around 62 AD, and Paul's conversion, we don't know exactly when it was, but probably in the mid to late 30s, something like that. So his faith in Christ, his excitement is 25 years old, and he's still got this boyish excitement. That's one of the really cool things about this passage. All right, Henry. All living creatures have a part of God in ourselves. We don't have life on our own. So in a sense, when he rescues us, he restores to him a little part of himself. We make him whole by that nature because he is the source of life. And when he shared with us, it's him in us. So I can only be able to see now how this inheritance, we can be his inheritance because it's going back to him what is his own anyway. And the vacuum that is going to be, the emptiness that is going to be in his heart for those that choose not to be back with him. So the inheritance is not complete. Mm. But he predestined everybody to be able to go back and be part of that, but leave it up to us to make him whole or not. I really love what you're saying, Henry. If every one of us is truly unique, you know, every snowflake is unique. That's a stunner, but there's a lot of them. <laughs> but if every snowflake is unique, then certainly every human being is unique. And that means that each of us carries a unique facet of God's character. And when a person is lost for eternity, a unique facet of God's character is not being witnessed to in eternity. So there's a sense of eternal loss in the midst of all that. And inspires me, at least, to seek to find and bear witness to that uniqueness so that throughout eternity that won't be lost. Yeah. Number six, read Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. In him you also, when you had heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and had believed in him, were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance towards redemption as God's own people to the praise of his glory. As Seventh-day Adventists, one would have to stop here, right? Because the first thing person is going to say reading this text, well, wait a minute, I thought the sealing was end time. And Paul is here saying that it's in the past. You were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, and you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. So, Adventists, what are you going to do with that? Sealing is in the past. Revelation 7 says it's in the future. What is happening? And I would point out there is such a thing as what's called sometimes a root fallacy, where you take one meaning of the word and apply it every time you see it. And maybe that word no longer means what it originally meant. It can mean something different. In the Bible, stealing is four different meanings, and in the ancient world as well, not just in the Bible. There's four different meanings of sealing. You can seal a book, and sealing a book, Revelation 5 does that, right? Sealing a book can mean two different things. It can mean to validate the document. And I think the lawyers among us will recognize this very easily today, that you seal certain documents to validate that they are genuine. You know, there's only one seal hidden in the back in the, in the safe all right, for that county, say. So you can only produce a genuine seal with this one device. 
And if the document has that seal, that impression in it, it is valid. It's for real. A second way is you can seal something to hide the contents. If the book is a scroll and you wrap the scroll up and then you seal it with a wax seal, if that seal is unbroken, then you know that the contents are safe from tampering, but you also know that you can't read them until you break the seal, you see? So the idea of hiding, sealing something actually hides the contents. That's what you find in Revelation 5, the seal as hiding something. But in the ancient world, sealing can also have to do with persons. And one type of seal is as a mark of ownership. A slave would have a brand. They would be tattooed with a mark of ownership. So sealing a person can be a mark of ownership. It can also be a mark of protection. In Ezekiel 9, an angel seals the inhabitants of Jerusalem on their forehead if they are on God's side. And behind him are six destroying angels that anybody who doesn't have the seal gets destroyed. So the concept that a seal can be a protection in a difficult time. In Ephesians 1, seal is being used with the mark of ownership. It's saying, this person belongs to me. This is God's person. And the New Testament writers often spoke of themselves as God's slaves. I think part of this whole conceptual world. We belong to God. God knows those who are his, 2 Timothy 2.19. In Revelation 7, it's not that initial sealing of the gospel. In Revelation 7, it's the servants of God who are sealed. In other words, they are already belong to God. But now there's a special sealing, and that seems to be a protection from the winds of strife, etc. So sealing can mean different things in different places, and that can be confusing to people. So not every time you see the word sealing in the Bible does it mean an end-time seal of protection. It can mean other things as well. And some would point out the Sabbath is sealed. There's a seal of the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. So that's an additional piece of this metaphor. In Steps to Christ, page 68, I think it summarizes the meaning here that sealing is a sign that the person has accepted the gospel. Sealing is when assurance is appropriate. When a person is sealed, then they can talk about being saved, as Michael was saying. They can talk about assurance of salvation. And Ellen White summarizes the gospel in a striking way in page 68 of Steps to Christ. In the matchless gift of his son, God has encircled the whole world with an atmosphere of grace as real as the air which circulates around the globe. All who choose to breathe this life-giving atmosphere will live and grow up into the stature of men and women in Jesus Christ. Pretty awesome. Here, the gospel is described as breathing in the air. You can hold your breath and say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. Uh, the outcome of that is assured. Or you can breathe it in and the outcome of that is assured. So it's another metaphor for salvation. And I liked it. But taking Paul's metaphor, assurance of salvation means being sealed by the Spirit. And that raises the big Western question, doesn't it? How do you know? How do you know that you are sealed by the Spirit? How would you know? that some other person was sealed by the Spirit. You know, pastors have to make those decisions all the time. Can I baptize this person? Whatever. How do you know? In yourself or in somebody else? Sean? I have some lovely Christian friends who take these passages, and particularly the emphasis that we're placing on 
this sealing here and Paul's intention for the use of that word as chosen, selected, set apart, as it were, as a way to deepen their impression that Paul is talking about a rather strict view of their predestination theology. And these lovely Christian friends are, in many cases, no more secure in their salvation than some Seventh-day Adventists that I have encountered along the way, as they have struggled with this same issue of not wanting to declare that they are saved, confusing the past and present and so forth. So I can see where these passages, combined with some others, have led to a major theological void in the way certain people do theology. So how do you best address the insecurity that comes with both positions, frankly? Mm -hmm. Insecurity, I think, is human nature. It's part of the consequence of sin that we feel insecure. We don't have confidence in ourselves or even in God. Is there any way to know? And I think the strongest evidence would be what Paul says in another place, the fruits of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit. When the Spirit comes into your life, the Spirit brings what? Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. There's a whole list of them there. You may look at that and say, wow, I'm a mess compared to that list. But I think the gospel, the transformation, we'll talk more about that in the next session, but the transformation that comes in Christ is not necessarily instantaneous. When a person first comes to Christ and first accepts the gospel, there can be this euphoria of being totally cleansed and free and new life, etc. And everything can be great until you mess up a week later, two weeks later, or something. Now what? And everything that we're reading here is saying, God adopts those who screw up. And if Paul is the one writing this, keep in mind that Paul himself was the worst of sinners. And he admits that. If Paul can be saved, nobody else in this room, nobody listening to this is out of God's reach. And I think that's the power here. In Ephesians, you know, he is one who first heard of Christ. He came out of the worst imaginable background, and yet he was accepted by God. But you may say, yeah, but I accepted Christ, and I'm still not full of love, joy, and peace. That may be so. But what I think we're talking about here is getting involved in a process. Are you more loving than you were before? Is there more joy than you had before? Is there more peace than you had before? Are there moments now that are different? Is there a change in your life? I think these are evidences, the fruits of the Spirit, as limited as they may be in some of our lives. They're a miracle when they happen. Genuine love is a miracle whenever it happens. True joy is a miracle when it happens. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit. Peace in this messed up world is a miracle whenever it happens. If you've tasted those miracles, if you've seen a change, I think you can have confidence the Holy Spirit is working in your life and you're working together. And I think Paul is trying to tell us that if there's ever a moment when we're not so sure, remember that God has predestined you to be readopted. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the message of this challenging text, concepts that stretch our minds to almost a breaking. And yet the one message does come through, the message that in Christ we are adoptable. We are redeemable, and one day we will even be an inheritance to you. Amazing. We thank you for that in the name of Jesus. Amen.
Yes, may I ask one question, please? Dr. Pauline, I'm just writing down the four definitions of sealing, and I got hiding something, a mark of ownership, a mark of protection, but I'm missing one. There are two domains here, sealing objects, all right, like a book, and a seal can be a validation. This is authentic. Or it can be hiding. If it's a book, you seal a book or you seal a letter, you're hiding the contents. So those are two meanings the term can have. And in Revelation 5, you have the hiding type of concept, hiding of a book. When applied to persons, it can mean ownership. You know, I own you. Or it can mean the market protection. Would a good summary mean a seal can be a validation for hiding something? a mark of ownership or a mark of protection. Is that a right. good story? In Revelation 5, it's concealing a book, the content of a book. In Revelation 7, it's a mark of protection. In Ephesians 1, it's a mark of ownership. I think that's the distinction here. And when you know the options, the texts start making more sense.